Good afternoon. Do you recognize this man? Maybe familiar with a different picture, something like this. This is the Rebbe. First picture is when the Rebbe was young. Good afternoon. It's Tuesday, 12.15 p.m., time for lunch and learn. Welcome back to our weekly Torah session where we study Torah together for 60 minutes. And today we will talk about tzaddikim, a tzaddik, what it is, who they are, and why is this such an important ingredient in Jewish life. Good afternoon. This is our Lunch and Learn. This is Lunch and Learn number 121 since we began many, many months ago. <clears throat> We're used to having a lunch, but now we have our own lunch and we just study Torah together. I'm going to say a blessing. You can make a blessing over what you are eating or drinking. Baruch atah adonai Eloheinu melech o'elam she'akol ni'yabedvorei. Good afternoon, Amy. Good afternoon, Roy. Good afternoon, Jody. Hello. And good afternoon, everybody joining on. And good afternoon, Gary. And we are getting ready to begin our Lunch and Learn, where we look at traditional Torah sources. We like to find the source inside um, where <coughs> what we're talking about comes from and look at a specific Jewish topic from these sources, whether it's Torah verses, verses from scriptures, quotations, passages from Talmud, from Mishnah, which is the compilation of a comprehensive compilation of the Jewish tradition. It was sealed at about the year 500 of the Common Era, but it contains the wisdom and the teachings uh, passed down for hundreds of generations, going back to Moses at Mount Sinai, the Talmud as it's known, or the Gemara, looking at those, or Midrash, different parts, uh, more law in Talmud, and Midrash is more um, ideas uh, along the parshas of the Torah. But these are the passages that we use, the traditional passages that are accepted by all Jewish people as Torah. And that's what we'll do today. And the topic today is tzaddikim, or a tzaddik. Tzaddik is singular for a tzaddik. A tzaddik is a righteous individual, man or woman, Tzadikes is more the feminine term for, for a female, but a tzaddik, a holy individual, a special person, something about them. Tzadikim is plural in Hebrew. And we're going to learn why we need to learn about them and what, they have, what it has to do with our life and Jewish life. And the reason why we're talking about this topic, as I showed a picture of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a tzaddik. This Shabbos, what was on the Jewish calendar, we have something going on, something coming up, and on High Howie from Cincinnati, and on this, on the Jewish calendar, this Shabbos is the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Shabbat. And the 10th day of, the, of Shabbat, this year, will mark 71 years since the passing of the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, who, uh, who came here to America in 1940, and passed away on this day, on the 10th of Shabbat in 1950. And following that, on this day, our Rebbe, the 7th Rebbe in the chain and the dynasty of Chabad, his son-in-law, the previous Rebbe's son-in-law, assumed the leadership of being the Rebbe, the leader, the Tzaddik, and therefore we're dedicating today's lesson, looking in traditional Jewish sources about this topic of a Tzaddik, 
and the relationship that we should have with them, they have with us. So join me for a 60-minute journey as we follow the source sheet that was prepared specially for today's lesson. Either you can take a look at your email and download it or print it out on this post. There's also a link to the source sheet and nothing that I'm sharing today is of my own. I'm merely sharing with you what has been taught by others, by passages of the Torah. And today's lesson is divided into four sections. We'll talk about different aspects of a tzaddik. And here we go. Hopefully after today we will be more educated, more knowledgeable in this topic and of course with some practical advice. Here we go. Source number one. We're learning about what the role and the function of a Rebbe or a Tzaddik is. Hello, Miss Miller. And here we go. Source number one, a quote from the Talmud, the death of the righteous is equivalent to the burning of the temple of the Lord. That's the passage of the Talmud. Let's analyze this again. The death of, a, of the righteous. The righteous is the literal translation of the tzaddikim, the righteous ones. The, the terms will, are interchangeable. A tzaddik, a rebbe, uh, a sage, Torah scholar. In this lesson, it's going to be used uh, um, the same way. Referring to the righteous, the tzaddikim. So the death of the righteous, when, when the righteous, when a righteous individual, a tzaddik, passes away, it is equivalent to the burning of the temple of the Lord. This is referring to the base Hamikdash, the holy temples that stood in Jerusalem <coughs> on Mount Moriah. The first temple stood for 410 years. The second temple, which was built 70 years later for 420 years, a total of 830 years, the temple stood in Jerusalem. And you can imagine the destruction of these temples which occurred both on the 9th of Av. Tisha B'Av is a, is a terrible thing, a catastrophe, a tragic thing for the Jewish people which we mourn until this day. Says the Talmud that when a, the righteous pass away, the death of the righteous is equivalent to the destruction, to the burning of the temple of the Lord. And it's, it's, uh, it's, not, it's surprising, you know, the temple of the Lord gets destroyed, that's, that's uh, of the greatest magnitude. And the passing of the righteous, what's the connection? And obviously, there's something about the righteous that is equivalent, that uh, fulfills and accomplishes the same role as the temple. Let's continue on in source number one. The life of a tzaddik is similar to the purpose and function of the temple. So the Talmud doesn't just say things. You, know, you want to know how terrible it is that a righteous man or a woman passes away, it's like the destruction of the temple. It's not just telling us how bad it is, but it's telling us what the role of the tzaddik is. And therefore, with the, with the passing of a tzaddik and the lack of the void of the tzaddik being in the world, it is like the void, the destruction of the temple. Whatever the temple's function is, and now that the temple is destroyed, that function is not there, at least properly, and not 100%. And that is the life of a tzaddik. So when the tzaddik passes away, because the tzaddik during his lifetime fulfills this function, so with his passing, it is like the destruction of the temple. Hi, Jack. So that's the first passage. We see in the Talmud a comparison between the lives, the functions, the roles of a tzaddik and the role of the temple. Of the Beis Hamikdash, the holy temple of the Lord. And that's what the Talmud says. That 
with the Tzaddik's passing, with his death, it is like the destruction. Not just telling us how painful it is or how, how terrible it is. But comparing them. So in order to understand what the role and the function of a tzaddik is primarily during their lifetime and of course after as well but primarily during, during their lifetime we need to look into what is the function of the temple or what was the function of the temple although we do have some remnants of the temple today we have the western wall which was the surrounding wall of the temple mount which is not actually the wall of the actual temple but it was just a wall surrounding the temple but the temple itself is not in its glory is not built so what was the function of the temple for 830 years? Source number two, we move on to another source from the Talmud, which compares the function, the role of a tzaddik, of the sages, of the generation to the temple. And will give us a little bit of insight, what's the role of the temple? Source number two, we have a story of a man named Herod. This is during the second temple era, over 2,000 years ago. And... The Jewish homeland, the land of Israel, was then ruled by the Romans and particularly by a man named Herod. In the Jewish pronunciation is known as Hordus. And Herod, Herod was the one that ruled the land of Israel and he was a madman. He was um, literally a madman and he at one point wiped out, he literally executed many of the sages of the Jewish people of the time. They were disobedient, you know, this herald was, was questionably Jewish and not, definitely not fit to rule the Jewish people, to be the melech, to be the king. And he, got, he was outraged and ex executed many of the sages. And at one point he regretted what he did. And he came to a relative of his, one of the remaining sages, a man by the name of Bava, Ben, Buta, Bava, the son of, son of Buta. And he asks him, he says, Herod says to Bava, what should I do? What should I do to rectify my actions? Look what he did. He executed so many of the sages. So Herod comes to Bava. And what does Bava respond to him? So, number two, Bava ben Buta says to Herod, He who extinguished the light of the world by killing the sages should go and occupy himself with the light of the world, the temple. You executed the light of the world. You executed the sages. You should go and occupy yourself with the light of the world. What does it mean to occupy yourself with the light of the world? Referring to the temple. This was during the second temple era. And at that time, the Jewish people were not very wealthy. And it wasn't like the first temple, which was built by King Solomon. And everything was coated in gold and beautiful um, designs. The second temple was built by the exile um, the Jews that came up from the Babylonian exile and they built a building but it was not compared to the first temple and Bava ben Buta suggests to Herod that if you extinguish the light of the world which is the sages which bring light to the world with their guidance you should occupy yourself you should rebuild the second temple you should design it and make it the most beautiful building and that is exactly what Herod did and as the Talmud testifies that he who did not see the building of Herod, the temple of Herod, never saw a beautiful building in his life. And today, the western wall and other parts of the temple compound that, that is visible and that, that is, uh, remains, and looking at other buildings that Herod made, one can see the magnificence and beauty of, such, of, of the building that he did. 
But what we see from the passage of the Talmud is that once again there is a comparison between the sages, the tzaddikim, and the temple. And therefore, because he executed the temple, what, how could he rectify himself with something similar to the temple? Something which... Something similar to the sages, and that's the temple. Because the temple and the sages are both called the eyes, the light of the, of the world. In what way? <clears throat> Let's take a look at source number three. Three times a year, the Torah tells us three times a year, you shall appear before God in the place that He will choose. Who, where is this place? This was told to them when the Jews were still in the desert through Moshe. And Moshe is communicating to the Jewish people the word of God that when you will come into the land of Israel and eventually God will choose the city of Jerusalem, which took some time, took a couple hundred years until the times of King David, although there was always some sort of temple, but it was more temporary. And eventually God chose Jerusalem and David began the plans and his son Solomon, King Solomon, built the first temple. So three times a year you shall appear before the Lord. There was a mitzvah, the pilgrimage, that on the three major holidays, the holiday of Pesach, Passover, and seven weeks later on the holiday of Shavuos, when the Torah was given, and, and a few months later on Sukkot, when we sit in the Sukkah, which culminates with Simchas Torah, Three of those, these three holidays, it is a mitzvah for everyone to appear in the temple and bring up offerings and sacrifices, but to appear in the temple. Now, Jews were living all over the land of Israel. And to travel in those days was not easy. Today, it, for, for a bus ride from Jerusalem, which is in the center of Israel, to the north, is a three-hour bus ride. It's like going to the moon in Israel. People don't travel so much over there. But uh, I remember I was in yeshiva in Jerusalem and uh, I was going to my uncle in, in Tzafat in the north. It was a three-hour bus drive and many of the students in the yeshiva, they have never been there. Three-hour drive. But in those days before cars and trains and planes, of course, but even in the land of Israel to travel, it says it took the furthest Jew two weeks to, 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 for, to, to return from the temple back home. It was a lengthy journey. So for some Jews, it was two weeks there, two weeks back. For one week there, it was a five-week trip, three times a year. That's uh, quite some time, and he has to leave his fields and leave his workplace, and, and the study of Torah was, was not easy to do on the way so many times a year to take off so much to travel to the temple. Why was this so important? And continuing in source 3, we find another comparison between the temple, appearing in the temple, the visits to the temple to the sages. And it's, brought, it's from the Talmud and brought down in Code of Jewish Law. A person is obligated to go out and greet his teacher on a festival. That just like there is a mitzvah, there was a mitzvah in biblical times to ascend to Jerusalem and be, appear in the temple by God, the temple of the Lord. On the holiday, so too, there is a mitzvah on these festivals for one to greet his teacher. And I'm not just his teacher that teaches in math. This is talking about the teacher of the generation or the teachers, one of the great people, the sages, the tzaddikim, the holy men or women, or the individuals of the generation. Why is that so important? Why is it so important to visit a teacher, to be in their presence, to bask in their presence? Why is that such an important thing that one would take off from work and travel? And in those days, it wasn't, it wasn't as comfortable the way it was today with air conditioning and heating. It was a real trip. Three times a year. Why does the Torah mandate this? But again, we see the comparison. We see the comparison from the temple to the sages in the fact that their passing is equivalent 
uh, to the destruction, and the fact that Her- that Bava instructed Herod to fix up the temple as some sort of rectification for extinguish for ex- executing the sages. And number three, there is a comparison in the obligation to visit the temple and visit sages when it comes to times of the holiday. Why is this important? Let's take a look at source number five. So, what is the actual role and function of the temple? Source number four, the Torah says. Why, what did God instruct the Jewish people? To make the temple was an instruction from God. God says in the book of Exodus, Make for me a sanctuary and I shall dwell in it. What is a temple? A sanctuary, a holy place designated for God where God dwells. You may have heard the term in English, the godly revelation. Why revelation? Because God is everywhere. Continuing in source four, God is everywhere. But he is not revealed everywhere. God's presence was revealed in the temple and from there it spread to the entire world. The temple was a place in this world where God's presence was felt. Where God says in the Torah, Vishachanti, and I will dwell. You ever heard in Hebrew it's called the Shekhinah, which the dwelling of God. Yeah, God is everywhere. God created and continues to create. There is every there is the presence of God everywhere. Like we sing in the Hebrew school, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. Yes. But where is God? God's presence is not always felt, it's concealed, it's hidden. But in the temple, the temple is a place God says, It's my home. It's my home, just like in our home where fully revealed, we let our guard down. The temple was a place where God's presence was felt. The person was able to experience and get in touch with the true reality of God in the temple. Being in the temple accomplished that. It was a place where God is revealed. And from there, from the temple, it spread forth to the entire world. And when Solomon, King Solomon, designed the first temple, the physical design the kind of windows he put in was a manifestation of the idea, the role of the temple. As we see here, a quote from the book of Kings, one of the books of the prophets, source number six, source number five, excuse me, for his house, for the house, for the house of God, Solomon made windows broad and narrow. The windows were broad and narrow. Now, this does not mean some windows were broad and some windows were narrow. Says the Midrash, they were broad and narrow. The same windows that he made for the temple were broad on one side and narrow on the other side. Which, what do you think? You might think, usually, windows are to bring in light. So, you make them, they're more narrow on the outside and more broad on the inside. So, the light can spread out and light up the entire room. But by the temple, it was not so says the Midrash, narrowing on the interior and widening on the exterior, so as to give out light to the world, because the temple's windows were not to bring in light from the outside, because that was not the idea, the spiritual concept of the temple. The concept was that the temple is a place of light, physical, spiritual light. It's a place of God's presence, and because that was the idea of the temple, that from the temple people get inspired, people have an awareness of God and a consciousness of God and are permeated with a feeling for Hashem from the temple. So therefore it manifested itself in the actual physical design of the temple that the windows were made in such a way that it was narrow on the inside and wide on the outside, symbolizing that the light of the temple is being spread out to the entire world. And source number six, with this we can understand why it was such an important mitzvah to visit the temple regularly. Because living far from the temple, going through regular life and 
plowing the field and planting the field and things planting from the field and working the land and in a place, yes, they were studying Torah and they were doing the mitzvahs, but one can get distracted and think that life is just, the world is just running, nature is just running, and the, and the fulfillment of the Torah and mitzvahs can become mechanical and robotic without feeling and awareness of God Himself. Become desensitized. And in order to bring that passion, that soul into the Judaism, says God, I know I, what I want you to do is, I want you to build a sanctuary where I will dwell, and you shall make a point of visiting this temple. It's a mitzvah, one of the 613 commandments, to visit the temple three times a year was very important. Source number six, since the temple was the generator that facilitated the awareness of God throughout the entire world, one's thrice yearly visits would enforce and increase his awareness and consciousness of God. That later on when he goes back home, his fulfillment of mitzvahs, his connection to Hashem is infused with feeling and it permeates his entire being. It's not just something that he does. You know, there are two parts to, to Judaism. There's the body and there's the soul. The body is, put a mezuzah on your door. Only eat kosher. Don't, re- don't work on Shabbos. And so on and so forth. But that's the body. Those are the do's and the don'ts. In order to know that, we can open up a book and we can, or scroll and look inside and know what to do. Look into the code of Jewish law. The visits to the temple is in order, in order to enhance that at those actions in order to breathe life, to breathe soul into the body of the, of the Torah and the mitzvahs. And that's how God intends it to be. That it should be done with feeling, with understanding, and really connecting to it. And that was accomplished by the visits to the temple, by witnessing God's presence in the temple, by feeling God and seeing that this is, this is, not, this is real and not just this is something that uplifted the people and infused them. It was a powerhouse, the temple, until their next visit to, their t- to the temple. That concludes our first section, which began with comparing the tzaddikim, the role of a tzaddik, to the temple. And looking into the temple, we understand why, what the temple accomplished for 830 years, that it breathed life, soul, into the Jewish people's fulfillment of Torah mitzvahs. It was a place where God dwelled, and where people can feel God in a very real way. Now with the passing of the temple, this is not so present. Yes, God's presence never leaves the temple, but it's not the way it was. It's not 100%, it's a less of a percentage. So what do we do now? What do we do now that there are there is no standing temple? So we move on to section number two. But we now understand why it was important for them to travel and go through two weeks here, two weeks there, and one week there to be at the temple. Talking about travel. What travels all around the world but stays in one corner? That's the stamp. Although we don't really use stamps so much anymore. We're not mailing as much. It stays in the corner of the envelope. But here the Jews had to uproot themselves from their homes because this was such a, something so important. God does not want us to fulfill the Torah and mitzvahs out of routine. He wants us to have the soul, the enthusiasm, the feeling. And in order for that to happen, one had to visit the temple. 
How is this accomplished today? Let's move on to section number two. To find out how to get this very important and the main ingredient in Jewish life. If you're following along, please uh, just give me some feedback here so we can feel like we are studying this Torah together. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to comment uh, along the way and we can address them at uh, more at length at the end of today's lesson. Moving on to section number two. Source number seven. Thank you. It's great to study Torah together. Source number seven. A quote from the Torah. The Torah says, To love the Lord your God, to hearken to His voice, and to cleave to Him. Torah says we have a mandate, we have a commandment, not just to listen to God's words, to cleave to God. In Hebrew, Uledovkaboy. Ledovka. Dovka comes from the word devek. In Hebrew, modern Hebrew, excuse me, tape or glue. Glue is called devek because it connects two things. Devek means to cleave, to become one. So we have a commandment to cleave to God. How do we cleave to God? How do I connect to God? I can follow His voice. It says, love your Lord your God and to hearken to His voice. I can follow His voice. I can follow what He's asking of us to the best of my ability. What does it mean to cleave? Like the Talmud presents the question in Tractate Kesubas, God is compared to fire. How can you attach yourself to fire? There's a verse that Talmud quotes, says, Ki Hashem eish He's like a fire. And how can you come close to fire? God, how can I? God is like fire. Like, we, we can't come close to fire. We can't cleave to fire. How can we cleave to God? Says the Talmud and the Alter Rebbe brings it in Tanya and he elaborates, source number eight, he who cleaves to, onto a Torah scholar is deemed by the Torah to have actually become attached to the Divine Presence. Through attachment to the scholars, all souls are united with their essence. So the Talmud says, and it's explained in the Tanya, what it means is one should cleave. How can one cleave to God? By cleaving to his representatives. To cleaving to those that are called tzaddikim, the Torah sages. And by cleaving to them, you will be connected to your source to God. Sounds... Not very Jewish, but that's the Jewish thing. Yes, by connecting to a human being who is so devoted to Hashem, to God. He has no worldly desires. His entire life is merely to fulfill God's will and to bring awareness to God. And he has worked on himself to such a point, and we'll see more about his, about his uh, or her... Um, <clears throat> not personality or character... Such a person, through cleaving to them, says the Talmud, you can look it up in, tra- in Tractate Subas, that through connecting to the Talmidei Chacham and to the sages, or the Tzadikim, the righteous ones, through that, we are glued, we are connected to God. How is that done? By being around them, studying from them, observing them, hearing about them, learning about their way of life. That is how we cleave to God. There are certain individuals that are the, uh, the path that through them, through connecting to them, we, connect, we are connected to God. So connecting to them does not detract from our connection to Hashem. No, we're worshiping God. But through them, our connection to them enhances our connection to God. That through them, we are connected to God. Not God forbid that they are God, but they are merely enhancing our connection to God. Exactly what the temple accomplished, the same thing that Sadiq accomplishes. 
as we see in Source 9, God saw that the righteous were few, so He arose and planted some of them in each and every generation. Because every generation, not every generation, was the generation of the Temple times. So every generation needs the righteous ones. And since God saw that they're few, so He organized, He orchestrated that they should be a few in each generation available to the people of the generation that they can connect and cleave to the righteous ones in their times and through them connect to God. So just as the temple is filled with godliness, which then radiates the entire world, so to a tzaddik is a conduit, conduit for revealing God's presence in the world. The tzaddik is a conduit, is a vessel for God's presence, just like the temple. And we see clearly in, the, in source number 10, just like God said that by building the temple, I will rest in the temple. And then by visiting the temple, you will feel my my presence and be inspired when you go back home. So too, through our visits on the festivals or other times and learning about the life of tzaddikim, through that we will come in contact with the presence of God. We will be connected to God Himself. How so? Because if you look in the wording of the Torah, Torah even hints to it. So take a look at source number 10. What does the verse actually say? The literal translation of the words. Source 10, Build me a sanctuary and I will dwell in them. Actually, when the Torah, when God is commanding the Jewish people, He says, build me a temple, veshachanti, and I will dwell. It doesn't say besocho, for those that know Hebrew, betocho, which means in it, in, in it, in the temple. It says that through the temple, I, w- I will dwell in them, plural. Through building the temple, I will dwell in them. What's the dwell in them? You're not dwelling in me, you're not dwelling in the Jews, you're dwelling in the temple says the Kabbalah, that this refers to individuals. These are the righteous people. That through, continuing in Source 10, when a person refines his or her personal sanctuary, his body, God's presence will dwell in him. Just like the sanctuary, the building of the sanctuary was the home for God's presence, our bodies are the sanctuary. When we purify, we elevate, and we... And we... Uh, make our bodies the proper sanctuary for God, then God will dwell within, within us or within the righteous people. So there is such a concept, though we are used to having an object which is, has God's presence, like a Torah scroll or a tefillin, which has a holy, uh, holiness to it, God's presence, or you have the temple which is a, or synagogue which is designated for God's presence and God's presence fell, but there is such a concept of also God being present. Of course, we have a, each of us and every one of us has a soul which is a piece of God, but in a more felt way in a tzaddik, in an individual. And by visiting the tzaddik or learning about the tzaddik of our generation, through that we are inspired we, and we feel God's presence and we, have, we, we gain an awareness and a consciousness of God and therefore even when we leave the tzaddik, we are inspired and our Judaism, the body of our Judaism is inspired with the soul, is invested with, with enthusiasm, with vitality and alacrity. And therefore the halacha is, the law is, source number 11, the reverence that you have towards your teacher should be the same nature as the reverence you have toward God. And seemingly that's pretty, uh, maybe, uh, sounds heretical. I should honor my teacher, this Torah sage, the tzaddik, as I honor God. My reverence for a human being should be like a God. But here we're not talking about an ordinary teacher which just is brilliant and study lots of Torah. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a teacher like Moses, our teacher, a teacher who is, who is, who is 
who fits the criteria for a tzaddik, somebody who does not have any sense of self, somebody whose entire being is dedicated to Hashem and is a conduit for God's revelation, for God's presence. As we will see soon as we go along. And therefore, such a person, we can revere, we can uh, show reverence, and we should. This is, this is Jewish law. Since the tzaddik contains a divine presence in him, we're not honoring the individual. We're honoring God's presence, which is individual. Why, when I come to a temple, the temple mount, is it forbidden for somebody impure, or I need to be dressed a certain way? There's all kinds of laws, how we behave in a synagogue. Not because the synagogue is holy, but because God's presence is in the synagogue. And similarly, when at Tzadik, we're not showing respect for the individual, we're showing respect for God's presence which finds itself and dwells in the Tzadik. How do we do this? Source 11, hearing at Tzadik's Torah teachings, observing how he prays, or witnessing his refined character traits and extraordinary love for every Jew all contribute to heightening one's awareness of God. So the tzaddik is not a teacher who's teaching us what is kosher, what is not kosher. That you go to the rabbi for. This is a rebbe. This is a tzaddik. The difference in a rebbe and a tzaddik is a tzaddik is an individual who is a tzaddik, but is not. He, he has God's presence, but he's not radiating it to others. He's sort of just for himself. A rebbe means a leader, a tzaddik who is a leader and a mentor, a guide to others. Somebody who shines light like the temple to others. Who by... People come to be in His presence and through that their awareness of God is heightened. We're not talking about the body of Torah here. What's kosher, what's not kosher, how to get married and uh, how to observe Shabbos, what's forbidden, what's not forbidden. That you go to the rabbi, that we can look in the books. Or you go to our teacher. This is referring to what's out. This is a spiritual leader. This is a spiritual leader who enhances our connection to God through connecting, through cleaving to the tzaddik, through observing His his character, his prayers. They say the Alter Rebbe, the first Chavad Rebbe, when he would pray, he would be so oblivious what's going on. He, he was having an emotional connection to God that he would literally, bang, his head would bang into the walls and he had to cushion the walls that he shouldn't hurt himself. It was like a, an amazing experience. And even though all those observing would not, were not on that level to experience that, by just observing it showed this is, this is real. This, is, this, was, this was inspiring. This was... Um, making God and spirituality real to all those that observed it, hearing his Torah teachings, inspiring us, guiding us. His knowledge of Torah was something beyond any other uh, any other Torah scholar with a good mind. This was something spiritual. A demonstration of how to love another Jew going out of their way to an extreme. The previous Rebbe, who was Yartzad, whose anniversary of passing is coming up on this Shabbos, is a great example. The previous Rebbe lived in Russia during the communist times in the 1920s. And if he would have stayed home and just did his own religion at home, then nothing would have happened to him. He would not be in grave danger. But he risked his life making sure, ensuring that kosher food was available, even when the communists and the KGB or the Gepu or the Enkevedeh were shutting everything down, making sure ritual bas mikvah was open for, for women to immerse in making sure that Jewish children were learning Torah underground in clandestine, making sure all of Jewish life was, was happening, yeshivas, in, 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 uh, in accordance to the Torah. And because he, he did that, he literally risked his life and he was arrested and, and slated to, to be executed and miraculously he was redeemed and he was, he was uh, let free. 
after uh, after some weeks of incarceration and exile. Why? This is doing a favor, a demonstration of the extraordinary love for another Jew. And by witnessing that, that heightens our awareness and consciousness of God. It's not telling us what to do. It's showing us how one can do it with soul, with alacrity, with devotion and dedication. Source 13, the more one works at attaching oneself to a tzaddik, the more one's attachment to God will be revealed. In order to feel the attachment and spiritually and emotionally, not only that a person does mitzvahs and studies Torah, but that these practices are accompanied by an awareness, love and awe for God, of God, one must be connected to the source where godliness is revealed. So it's not... So, so therefore, there's such a, ta- a concept, not just that the tzaddik is here, but we need to visit. We need to be connected. Just like there was a mitzvah to visit the temple, there's a concept of being connected. Learning and reading about or visiting a tzaddik in order to heighten our awareness of God, our feeling for God, the soul of our Judaism, which was the main ingredient, or a very integral, important ingredient. Reading about stories, reading uh, their way of life, uh, whether it's nowadays with watching videos, and so on and so forth. Because the more we're attached to the tzaddik, the more our connection to Hashem is enhanced. He is merely the facilitator, the generator for that connection, just like the temple was. The temple was a temple. It was a place where a Jew can connect to God. A tzaddik, being in the tzaddik's presence or being influenced by the tzaddik's Character and his behavior is an inspiration and enhances our connection to Hashem. And what's interesting is that there's a teaching of the word machatzis. I'll show you here in Hebrew for those that uh, can appreciate the Hebrew lettering. So the word machatzis, uh, which means a half, like a half a shekel, is used in the Torah. The center letter is a tzaddik. The letter tzaddik. Now the letter tzaddik could also stand for the word tzaddik, which means a righteous individual. So the tzaddik is in the center, and the two letters on the right and the left side of the tzaddik is a chet and a yud, which spell the word chai, life. So those that are close to the tzaddik, they are connected to the living God, and their, their Judaism is, in, is uh, infused with life and alacrity. But those that are distant from the tzaddik, you have a mem and a saf, which spells the word meis, which means death. The, the opposite, the lack of, of life and vitality. So we see that this is a Jewish concept uh, sourced in the Talmud that by being close to a tzaddik and throughout the generations it was always the tzaddik, Mordechai in the times of Purim and so on in every generation, Rashi and Maimonides and all the great leaders that, you know, behind me we have books of history. Right here there's a book called Gedoyle uh, Adoris, the, the leaders of the tzaddikim of the generations of all the past generations. Okay, moving on to our next two sections which will demonstrate how more, demonstrate more and bring out this concept how the tzaddik relates to us and how he um, heightens our awareness and our consciousness, our feeling that our whole life should be permeated with God. So Dr. Bloom was a known far and wide as a miracle worker. He was a great doctor for arthritis and he would heal his patients. So, so one woman books an appointment and after waiting a long time, finally her day for the appointment arrives and she's sitting in the office 
and she's waiting her turn. And meanwhile, she sees a woman sitting there and she gets up to go into the doctor, Dr. Bloom, and she's totally bent over. She has this cane and she, her back is in half. You know, she's totally bent over and she goes in and she and the other woman is waiting in the waiting room. Half hour later, the same woman comes out and she's standing tall and proud and her back is straightened perfectly. And the woman says to her, Wow, what a miracle! Dr. Bloom um, performed a miracle. Look at that, 30 minutes and your back is, is uh, nice and straight. So the old woman says to her, Miracle, miracle! you just gave me a bigger cane. Let's talk about miracles. Miracles are associated with tzaddikim, or rebbes, Hasidic rebbes, especially the performance of miracle. Let's talk about miracles. We'll talk about four aspects, how the tzaddik relates uh, and fulfills his mission, his role as did the temple. And the first is miracles. Okay, I'll turn the page to source number 14. A quote from Mishnah. As we said, quotes here are... Um, <clears throat> traditional Jewish sources. Hi, Alexander. Hi, everybody joining on. This is Lunch and Learn number 121. And we are uh, a little over half time learning about tzaddikim, our connection to the righteous ones in every generation. Source number 14, getting back to the temple because we have the comparison from the tzaddik to the temple. So what happened in the temple? What, in what way did the temple, what was one of the ways that the temple inspired the people and gave them the feeling of God? One was by the observance of the great miracles that were constantly occurring in the temple. And the Mishnah lists 10 wonders, source 14, 10 wonders occurred for our ancestors in the temple. And we listed a few over here. No fly was ever seen in the slaughterhouse. The temple, whether you like it or not, was a place where animals were slaughtered and brought up as sacrifices and offerings on the altar. And there were lots of Jews bringing up offerings for whatever reason. There was the daily offerings, the communal offering, the individual offerings. So no fly was ever seen. There was so much meat and stuff going on. No fly and there was no roof to the temple. It was open. That was a miracle. The rains did not extinguish the fire of the woodpile. There was always fires burning on the altar. And even when it rained, it did not extinguish the fire. Somehow it missed it. The wind did not prevail against the column of smoke. There was a tall column of smoke going off from the altar. And it was just a pillar going straight up. And the wind never blew it out of shape. The people stood pressed together. When imagine Jews from all over Israel. There were millions and millions of Jews. Uh, just when they entered Israel, there were about 3 million Jews. And they lived there for 850 years. You can imagine there were millions and millions, perhaps even more uh, than just millions and millions of Jews converging onto the temple for the pilgrim, pilgrimage during the festivals. And yet they stood pressed together when they came down to bow and to prostrate themselves to God in the temple. They had enough room somehow. That was a miracle. And more and more miracles. And being in the temple and witnessing these miracles happening, this made God more real. Yes, they believed in God and they fulfilled the mitzvahs, but it was like, wow, this is so amazing. This, this is happening. Their awareness, their awareness of God was heightened. Source 15, let's elaborate on the concept of a miracle, why God performs miracles. Because the veil of nature conceals the truth. God created the world and God orchestrates everything that happens, but nature it happens every day, so it seems like it's just happening without a conductor, without God's, um, without God's input. The sun rises, the sun sets, things grow, babies are born, and it just happens. It's nature. 
It's only nature. It's not miraculous because it happens every day. So there's like a veil that conceals how God is making everything happen. And a person can conclude that nature is an independent agent functioning without the need of divine input. He could think it's not God making everything happen. And really, the nature is just like a hammer in my hand. When I'm banging the nail, it's not the hammer that's building the house. Yes, I need the hammer. The, ha the, the hammer is what's banging the nail in, but it's my hand that's holding the hammer. And it's God who's holding the sun and putting the energy into the sun every morning to rise. Yes, it's happening every day. It's happening every day. But it doesn't mean that it's not a miracle. It doesn't mean that it's not God orchestrating and putting the energy into it. But... Because it's veiled, we don't see it, we don't see the true reality to our eyes. We are only able to see, just like I can't see the radio waves, and I can't see lots of other things that are floating in the air, only when it's sunny, so then I see a little bit of the dust. But uh, I don't see everything that's in the air. So too, there's a spiritual, there's the energy of God that's there making it happen, but there's a veil. So what's a miracle? A miracle pierces the veil and gives us a glimpse of God. Miracles can make one's belief in God more tangible and heighten our, his or her consciousness of God. And that's exactly what was part of the experience of visiting the temple, witnessing the miracle. Wow, how did that happen? How is the column of smoke going up straight? This is God's presence that's dwelling in the temple. And source 16, since God himself created the natural order, he is not restricted by it. He's the one that created nature. He created that wind makes, makes smoke blow. So he, was, he can make a miracle that the smoke of the, the column of smoke should not be affected by the wind. And they can therefore perform miracles. So since tzaddikim are completely unified with God on an essential level, they too are not restricted by the laws of nature and can perform miracles. And this is known that tzaddikim, whether it's going back to Talmudic times, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and um, came to the forefront and was brought back again uh, in full force during the three, you know, from three, four hundred years ago, the times of the Baal Shem Tov and the Hasidic Rebbe's and leaders to perform miracles because they were such people that got to a level of being a tzaddik so devoted to God that they were a conduit to bring, perform miracles, God's miracles. Because just like God is not limited to the rules of nature and can perform miracles like the splitting of the sea, so too the tzaddikim can do the same. <clears throat> so little, little uh, Moshe is praying to God and he's praying to God and Arthur walks by and he sees Moshe praying and he says, what are you doing? He says, I'm praying to God. You're praying to God? Who's God? You know what I mean? The almighty, the almighty God, Moshe says. The mighty God, almighty God who took our ancestors out of Egypt and he split the sea and he led them through miraculously. Arthur says, are you joking? That's all bubamysis. Nonsense. I read that the, not the, the sea of the sea of the Yamsuf, the sea was only 10 inches deep. That was no miracle to, for them to go through. That was, that, that's nothing. It was 10 inches deep. And goes on. Arthur goes on and Moshe continues to pray with even more fervor than before. And Arthur turns around and says, you're still praying. I told you it was 10 inches deep. Moshe says, now I know that God is so much greater because he drowned the entire Egyptian army in 10 inches of water. He managed to do that. That's a miracle. If God can perform miracles, so the tzaddikim, who are a conduit, who have God's presence in them in a more revealed way, they can perform miracles. It's not them. It's not magic. It's the energy of God flowing through them. 
And in many, many stories, to give a short example, the Alter Rebbe, when the first Chavad Rebbe, and he was arrested, we have the holiday of Yutas Kislev, the 19th of Kislev, we had it about six weeks ago, and he was, uh, different opponents to him who uh, <coughs> made a libel against him as if he is uh, um, going against the Russian, the Tsar's government, eventually he was freed, as uh, liberated, but during when he was first uh, arrested as a traitor, as going someone going against the Tsar, he was taken in the black carriage, and they were traveling Friday afternoon. And the Alter Rebbe told the the guard, the driver, the guard that uh, it's Shabbos. I don't travel on Shabbos. You must stop. And of course, they laughed at him. Oh, we're going to stop on Shabbos. Well, you're a prisoner. You're a prisoner. You're a uh, you're a prisoner of, of uh, going against the, the Tsar. Rebelling, rebelling against the Tsar. And then suddenly the axle of the wagon broke and they went, they fixed it, it took some time. And then, the, then when they fixed the axle, then the, one of the horses died. And then when they got a new horse, the horses wouldn't budge until they realized that the Alter Rebbe means business and he is performing these miracles. And he stayed there all Shabbos, the side of the road. And many such examples that because a tzaddik is a conduit for God's energy, for God's presence, Vishokhanti, God said I will rest amongst them, not just in it, in the temple, in every generation, so the tzaddik can perform these miracles. And by performing these miracles, sometimes for individuals or for communities in, in their time of need, then that serves to heighten the awareness of the Jewish people that are connected to them in their times. Many, many such stories. I'm sure we shared them in the past. Miracle stories. And the concept, the concept of, of, uh, of an individual reaching to such a level is in the Torah. The Torah talks about this. Source number 17. Torah says in the book of Deuteronomy, I will raise up a prophet for them from among their own people like yourself. God tells Moshe, Moses to tell the Jewish people, just like you, Moses, you're a prophet. You're a human being. He had a father and a mother. He wasn't a son of God. He, his father's name was Amram. His mother's name was Yocheve. We talked about him last week. And yet... He was somebody who was, so his whole life was, was, was God, was permeated with godliness. That's, what, that's his whole role and fu- function. So God says to Moses, you're not going to live forever. You're going to live till 120. But in the future, in every generation, I will appoint a prophet, someone who I will communicate with. Like yourself, not at the greatest level of Moses, but sim- similar idea. I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I will command him. He's speaking, but I am giving it to him. I am trans meaning it to, to him. And that is something, although there are different levels, whether it's uh, a prophet or something which is called Ruach HaKodesh, the divine spirit, divine inspiration. You know, it's something which, uh, with, which a, a person who is uh, devoted to God and, and on this level, God puts in his mind the right things to say and certain feelings about what's going on, certain events or people, and he is able to know things that are beyond the knowledge uh, of other people. Source number 18, Maimonides elaborates, who is fit to be a prophet? It is one of the foundations of our faith. One of the foundations of the Jewish faith is to know that God grants prophecy to men. That an individual can cut to a level that God communicates with him. Prophecy is bestowed. Now, what does he mean God communicates? I think he hears a big voice calling out to him, Moshe, Moshe. 
you know, with his ears, not necessarily, but his, his, his whole uh, being is so devoted and spiritually connected to God that what the, the thoughts that flow through his mind and the decisions that he makes are, are aligned, are, like God puts it into his mouth because it's merely a conduit for God's will. And uh, continuing in Source 18, prophecy is bestowed upon only upon a wise sage of strong character who is never overcome by his natural inclinations in any regard. His life is like perfect. He's totally devoted to God and does every mitzvah meticulously and is constantly, you know, fully with the study of Torah and love for every Jew and only thinking pure and proper thoughts. He must work upon himself until his mind is constantly clear and directed on high. One who does this immediately becomes worthy of divine inspiration. Not very easy. And those are the tzaddikim, those that reach this level. And it can be also the women. We have the, the famous you know, prophets, although there are many prophets, but the prophets that are known to us who not just had this divine inspiration for themselves, but they were a rebbe, they were a leader and a teacher to others, like this function of the temple. You have Moses, you have Aaron, you have Joshua, Yoshua, you have Ezekiel, Yechezkel, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Jonah, and all the... Famous, and you have the women also. Miriam, the sister of Moses, was a prophetess, and Devorah, Deborah, and you have a woman named Hulda. There were many, uh, um, of course, Sarah, and many women as well that were prophetesses. I reached this level. Source 19 says the Talmud from the day that the temple was destroyed, prophecy was taken from the prophets and given to the sages. I mean, it, was, it remained with the sages. Even during temple times, the sages had that, but it remained with the sages. So a tzaddik's divine inspiration allows him to experience a deeper spiritual awareness of people and events, which he often then communicates in order to assist people. So we mentioned one method, one aspect in which the tzaddik relates to others through performance of miracles. A second is through this divine inspiration. A tzaddik can detect, has a, an awareness of a person. So many stories people would come to, I know from our Rebbe, from the tzaddik in our generation, and without telling him about themselves, he would, he, he would just know things about them. He would, he would uh, know their past and uh, predict the future. And uh, events, uh, famous, very famously, the Rebbe predicted by the Six-Day War in 1967 in Israel when everybody was leaving in Israel, everyone was afraid. They were preparing uh, cemeteries to bury thousands and thousands of casualties. And, and, and the Rebbe was the only one that said publicly uh, weeks before that there will be a, a, a victory, there will be miracles, and Israel will, will be victorious. And people thought that, uh, you know... They, <coughs> How is the Rebbe saying this? And yet, that's exactly what happened. In six days, the war was over. A miracle, a modern miracle. And even the news, uh, the media, everybody agreed to that. Till today, they can't uh, understand exactly what happened. And the Rebbe predicted that. The Rebbe had the sense. People would come into his, to his room. Um, uh, it was one of the ways that people would connect to a tzaddik by visiting the tzaddik and coming in for a private audience or writing a letter to the Rebbe. The Rebbe would respond by, by letters or the Rebbe would give public addresses um, and people would come in and they would write on a note their questions and give it to the Rebbe, you know, to save time. And then uh, many times the Rebbe would answer their questions that were not written on the note. They only told them, we don't have, you don't have time to write all your questions. It was, it was a busy man, so the secretaries didn't let them write all their questions. And, and the Rebbe would just start continuing answering questions that they didn't even write. There was one man that had two notes. He had an empty note that he ripped off the, the paper and he had the note with the questions. And when he came in, he gave the note and he came out 
uh, the Rebbe answered all of his questions and he realized that he gave the Rebbe the wrong note. He gave the Rebbe the note which was empty and the note with the questions was still in his pocket and yet the Rebbe read it. That's the divine inspiration. The Rebbe was able to, able to see something beyond. A beautiful story <coughs> is a <coughs> story told by Rebbe Segel. Zev Segel was a rabbi of a young Israel in Newark and he, uh, he shared that he was interviewed and he shared the story that he was, um, you know, close to the Rebbe and not uh, officially a Chabad rabbi, Lubavitch, but he was someone that uh, looked up to the Rebbe and uh, <coughs> gained inspiration, inspiration from the Rebbe. And this was in 1967, 1968, excuse me, 1968, a few months after, or a year, a year after, excuse me, it was July... 23rd, 1968, about a year after the Six-Day War, which the famous general Ariel Sharon, Arik Sharon, who later was the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, who had a very, uh, who had a, a connection, a relationship with the Rebbe, visiting our Rebbe many times. During, later, his son was was killed, and the Rebbe um, corresponded with him. And at that time, a year later, he made a trip. Ariel Sharon made a trip to to New York, and he came to visit the Rebbe. It was late at night. And he had a, he was in the Rebbe's room, and from there he was scheduled to go straight to the airport. He had an LL flight, flight 426, I believe it was, to to Israel with a stopover in London. And while he was by the Rebbe, he kept looking at his watch, and he needed to go. It was time to get to, to the airport. He would miss his flight, and the Rebbe told him, stay, stay a little bit. So he said, I have a flight, and the Rebbe said, take, you'll take the next flight. You know, he convinced him to postpone his trip. And later, after they finished, he took the next flight. And what turned out was that that flight was hijacked by the, I forget what it's called, the uh, PL, uh, PL, something like that, the, the Palestinian uh, Front for Liberation or something like that, and they hijacked that plane that he was scheduled to be on while, while uh, on the last leg of the flight from London to Israel, and they, after a few weeks, they released the Jewish, the Jewish uh, hostages, but they were planning to get this Ariel Sharon, who was the hero of the time after the Six-Day War, who, who penetrated the, what it was called, the, the, the line in the Sinai Desert and, and went into Egypt and so on. So later, so this Rav Segal said, he asked the Rebbe, he said, I heard that you saved Ariel Sharon's life. And the Rebbe said, yes. And he asked the Rebbe, how did you know? And if you knew it was going to be hijacked, why, should, why didn't you tell everybody? You should have told that no one should go on the flight. And the Rebbe said, I think I knew that it was going to be hijacked. I just sensed that it wasn't the right thing. It wasn't good for him to leave and, and go to that flight. So... That's the Rebbe, and there's different levels to prophecy, but a tzaddik has an intuition, if you, want, if you might say, uh, a divine intuition and feeling and information of events and people, and he's able to use this information to assist them in heightening their awareness by witnessing this. Wow, wow there, there, there's something godly going on here. Moving on to our next section. Source number 20. We have miracles, we have divine inspiration, knowledge, and the Rebbe gives advice. That's how they give advice. Advice could be in any area. People wouldn't do an operation until they got the advice of the Rebbe. Should we do it, should we not do it? Even though the greatest doctor said you should do it, they got the Rebbe's advice. Should I do this business deal or not? Get the blessing of a tzaddik, the advice of a tzaddik, if you should do it, if it, look, if it could be successful or not. The Rebbe is not a doctor. The Rebbe, although he was very knowledgeable in medicine, not every tzaddik is knowledgeable in medicine, and not every doctor has experience, for, not every tzaddik has the experience from knowing a lot of people. Why do they seek the advice? 
because of the divine dwelling that's in the tzaddik. Source 20. Says the Mishnah in Pirkei of us, Ethics of Our Fathers, whoever studies Torah for Torah's sake alone merits that from him people enjoy counsel and wisdom, understanding and power. Now, it doesn't say just studying Torah. Studying Torah for Torah's sake alone. That's the way a tzaddik studies Torah. Not without, with any uh, ego involved. or Just for, for God. It's a very high level of studying Torah. And a tzaddik, when he studies Torah, so people enjoy from him counsel and wisdom. How? Because he knows what you can do on Shabbos, what you can't do on Shabbos. He's studying the Talmud. How does that help them? Help the tzaddik give counsel and wisdom? This is a tzaddik. A tzaddik. Source 21, we see this back to the temple. We see the concept that they would go to the temple for advice. How would they, what would they do? The Torah, in describing the, the, the clothing of the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, the first one was Aaron, it says like this. He wore all kinds of beautiful clothing. And one of them was a breast piece, a plate that went over here, a gold plate. And it had uh, 12 stones, beautiful gemstones, each one of a different kind. And it had the names of the 12 tribes inscribed on the, each of the stones. And it had all of the 22 letters of the alphabet on these, inscribed, engraved on these stones. Hi, Heidi and Michael. We're finishing up our Lunch and Learn. And we're in Source 21. Says the Torah, inside the breastpiece of decision, you shall place the Urim and Tumim. So that they are over Aaron's heart. Aaron was a high priest, brother of Moses at the time. He was a high priest. And it says that in this breast piece, in this uh, piece that went right over here, should be the Urim and Tumim. What is Urim and Tumim? Urim comes from the word Or, which means light. And Tumim comes from the word Tam, which means uh, perfect. What were these Urim and Tumim? Inside this, uh, this piece, it was called the breast piece of decision. What's decision? Says Rashi from the Talmud, it will light up its words and perfect its words. The solution, why was it called decision? The solution of the matter about which the Israelites are judging and debating whether or not to do something. So basically, the <coughs> Talmud explains that when the Jewish people needed to make a decision, usually a, a communal decision, uh, should they go to war, should they not go to war? Will they, will they be successful or not? Should they do this, should they not do that? So they would come to the high priest and they would submit their question and then the lettering that would highlight, the lettering of that was engraved on these stones of this piece would, would highlight and would give them the decision who should go to war or, or if they should go to war, they should stay put by the letter being highlighted. That's what was called Urim. It would light up and, and Tumim because whatever it would say would, be, would prove to be successful and be true. It was perfect. That's why it was called the Choshen HaMishpat which gave decision. It would make decisions so they would get advice from the temple, from the high priest which was in the temple. And similarly, the tzaddikim which serve uh, and fulfill the role and function of the temple also after the temple's destruction, the sages, the tzaddikim, the light of the world, not just illuminate and, and, and teach, but also give advice. How? Well, the high priest gave the advice? No. It was God through the high priest, through his clothing, through, through him. Source 22. Just as the Jewish people received advice from the Urim and Tumim, so too the tzaddik of every generation communicates God's words through whatever means he is given to do so. He transmits God's words, he gives advice. 
Nowadays, if we can't see the Rebbe, we could read his letters, advice. To date, over 12,000 of his letters that are public that that you can read and see the advice that he gave, which which can be applied, general advice that can be applied to more cases. We have videos. Just watching a a Rebbe, how he prayed, how how he talked about God. This was his whole life. That gives us a heightens our awareness and feeling to Hashem. And finally, the concept of a Rebbe, of a Tzaddik, for, give, for giving blessings. Source 23, the concept of a human being. Say, God is the one that gives blessings. What's a human being giving a blessing? He's the source of, of, uh, <coughs> of uh, blessing. Well, we see this in the Torah. Moses, who was the leader, a prophet, a Tzaddik of that time, he blessed the Jewish people. Source 23. This is the blessing with which Moshe, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel. He was a man devoted to God. And therefore he was able to take that energy and bless, pass it on to the Jewish people. He blessed the Jewish people. Look it up at the end of Deuteronomy, the last portion. The last portion is called, and this is the blessing that Moses gave to the Jewish people. He blessed the Jewish people because he is not a person for himself. He's merely a conduit for God's energy to flow through him. Because how are we to cleave to God? When we see a living example, a man born to a mother and father and is able to reach such a level, we see, we see someone who is so devoted and lives God in such a real way, then that awakens the soul in us. That we shouldn't just do mechanically Torah and mitzvahs, but it breathes life and alacrity into our performance of the mitzvahs, the will of God, which is a very important ingredient that God wants us to have. And that's why he says, make sure to visit your tzaddik. Make sure to connect to your tzaddik. The more you connect, the more vitality you'll have in, the, in, in, uh, in your connection to me. will be enhanced. Source 24, another example in Torah. The people cried out to Moshe. Moshe prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. There's once uh, something went wrong in the desert. Some people complained and God sent a fire. What did the Jews do? They didn't say, God, help us. They did that too. But also, they went to Moshe. They said, Moshe, can you go pray to God? They cried out to Moshe, and Moshe prayed to God. This may be compared, says the Midrash, the Sifri, this may be compared to the case of an earthly king who was angry with his son, and the son went to a friend of his father, and he said to him, go and ask forgiveness for me from my father. You know, you're, you're close to God. You're, you're really devoted to God. You're, you're my friend's father. You're my father's friend. Can you pray for me? Can you go to the father? Can you go to my... Yeah, it's my father. But... My father, <clears throat> I need someone to intercede on my behalf. That's what the Jews did. They went to Moshe. Moshe, you go pray to God for us. To, to God for us. Your prayer will be accepted more readily, more fast. You're a holy human being. You're someone who, who's devoted to God. And similarly, the Talmud instructs us to do the same. Source 25, the Talmud tells us, written 1500 years ago, anyone, who has a sick person in his home should go to a sage and the sage will ask for mercy on the sick person's behalf. And the Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, tells us, Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir, he says that any time of need, not only in the case of illness, he says any time there's a case of, of, uh, of need, one should go and ask the tzaddik, the sage, to pray for you. I can pray myself. I can pray to God. Yes, of course we should pray ourselves. But in addition, we want the tzaddik being the great person that he is, 
or she is, to pray and intercede on our behalf. So to sum up today's lesson, we have learned, I mean, let me sum it up with a little analogy, and we'll sum this up. Analogy goes like this. The analogy given by the second Chabad Rebbe, the Mitzel Rebbe, known as Rabdov Ber, the son of the Alter Rebbe. And in his book, Der Chaim, he writes like this, he says, we once a king who threw a young couple into a pit. Yeah, they, they, they couldn't pay their rent, I don't know, whatever he did, uh, the squire, whatever happened, they did something wrong, he threw them into a pit. And they were rotting away in the pit, living their life in the pit, and the only way they stayed alive was that every morning, um, there was a small little window all the way up at the to- top of the pit, the window would uh, slide open, and a rope was lowered with a basket with some bread and uh, some water, and they would put their waist uh, back into the basket and, and throw and uh, lift it back, and it was lifted back up. And then the window closed. For this went on for months and months, and then turned into years. And the woman had children in the <coughs> in the pit, and they raised the whole family. And this is how they lived life. They lived life in this deep, dark pit, and all what they knew was that the window opened and, and uh, some food came down. Now, the kids and the parents had totally different ways of looking at li- life. So the kids, they grew up, they didn't know life out of the pit. For the kids, this is what life was about. Life was, that's the way life is, that's the way the world is, that the window opens up and, fall, and food falls from, from, from the window and it gets pulled back up. They didn't see anybody over there, they didn't, they didn't interact, they never saw light. To them, there was no real world out there. This was life. Life was dark in the pit and they were happy with that. But the parents who lived once outside, they kept telling the kids, no, 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 I know you're living this life, but you can, you can see that there's somebody opening the window and lowering the, the food in. It's not the window that lowers food. It doesn't just happen by itself. There's somebody that's making it happen. And there's a whole world out there. And maybe one day we'll be able to see what's really out there. And that's what a tzaddik is. We're like the, we're like the children. We're born into this world. We, just, yeah, the, 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 we put a seed in the ground that grows the sun rises, the world, nature just happens. And yeah, we know what we got to do. We got to put the film, light Shabbos candles. We know we can open the books and we can learn from our teachers to know what to do. But the teachers, are like the, the tzaddik, is like the parents who teach us that there's a whole reality out there. There's a real reality. God is making everything happen. And God gave us the Torah and the mitzvahs. And it's real. It's real. There's, there's these waves that are happening when we perform a mitzvah. We're really being connected to Hashem. And they tell us about it. They don't just tell us about it, but they model it. They model it by showing us how they pray and showing us the miracles that they perform and giving us and, and the, the, the uh, knowledge that they show us, the, insp- the divine knowledge, inspiration that they have to show us about certain events and the knowledge they have about people and the advice that they give and how their blessings are fulfilled and, and uh, work miracles and just observing and basking in their in their presence and learning and hearing about them and watching them that enhances our our uh, relationship with Hashem that it's not just the body of Judaism there's the soul there is life there is there is feeling and meaning to it and that is exactly what the temple did during temple times but when that was taken away now elite in a, in a lower in a lesser measure we have the tzaddikim we have the light of the world who will illuminate us and give us light. What's a, what's a light? A light doesn't add anything new. A, la, a light just turn. You turn on the light, you can see everything. That's what a tzaddik does. It, it like gives us light. It tells us about the real things that's happening outside of the pit. That's what a tzaddik is. And this Shabbos is the 10th of Shvat, the day that the previous Rebbe passed away. And our Rebbe, the Lubavitch Rebbe, assumed the leadership and began 
uh, openly fulfilling this role of a tzaddik, and even though we can't see him physically today as he passed away, but we can continue to watch videos of him and read his books and read stories about him and the miracles they did perform, and in some way we could still connect to him uh, as his soul is still um, looking out for us and and by going to his gravesite and, and uh, asking for, for blessings and connecting to him, it is still possible today and it can be done. This is uh, wrapping up our Lunch and Learn for today, number 121. Questions and comments are welcome. Okay. <clears throat> There's so many stories we can share. We could leave that for, uh, for another time. And if I bring in, which bring out this point, bring this point home. I hope the idea is um, somewhat clearer than it was for all of us uh, 60 minutes ago. Or 66 minutes ago. Went a little overboard. L'chaim. L'chaim to that. And we should connect to the tzaddik and be inspired to serve God with joy and feeling. permeate our entire being. <clears throat> okay, um, next Lunch and Learn will be in two weeks, God willing. Next Tuesday, um, my sister is getting married. So, thank God. And yes, we're planning a small wedding. So I will be there, God willing, in good health. So... <clears throat> We'll miss you next week, but see you back in two weeks, God willing, for the next Lunch and Learn, where we can study Torah together. So, Zai Gesund, and this Thursday, we should be on at 7.30 p.m. on Revitson's page for another episode, episode 31. And, <clears throat> thank you. Excuse me. My younger sister. <clears throat> Thank you, Mazatov, and we'll see you back in two weeks. Have a wonderful day.